Previously on The Dropout, we met two Theranos lab employees who highlighted stunning blood testing issues that led to their resignations. Quality controls were failing at one point what seemed almost every day. This week, we hear real-life consequences from a patient on the receiving end of those tests. But first, a high-profile witness from Elizabeth's superstar board of directors surprises the courtroom by taking the stand. Once in a while, we can all be fooled by something. It was obviously that, uh, not a mistake on my part to be part of it. ABC Audio, this is The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial. Episode 6, The General and the Patient. If we've learned one thing from following the criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes, it's to expect the unexpected. And this week was no exception. Midway through the testimony of a PricewaterhouseCoopers employee who was diligently authenticating text exchanges between Elizabeth and her former boyfriend and COO, Sonny Belwani, the government made a surprise announcement. Another witness with significant demands on his schedule and international visitors to meet had some free time right then and there. Could a swap be made to accommodate this prominent figure? Judge Davila joked to the court, we can have the witnesses arm wrestle. Unfortunately for the jury and reporters in the room, there would be no arm wrestling. But there was a lot of speculating. Who was this busy VIP about to take the stand? ABC News's Miles Cohen described the scene. There's this man in the back of the courtroom and he's surrounded by an entourage of court marshals and what appear to be government special agents. There's all this whispering, is it Kissinger, is it Murdoch? And then they finally made the decision to bring this witness in out of turn. Ellen Kreitzberg is a professor of law at Santa Clara University. She was also sitting in the courtroom audience. And then that's when General Mattis was brought into the courtroom. General Mattis, the four-star Marine general, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, and former Theranos board member, we hear the prosecutor, John Bostick, say, the United States calls General James Mattis. And there's this buzz in the courtroom. Reporters begin furiously mashing on their keyboards, and many in the audience crane their necks to try to catch a glimpse of the former defense secretary. And uh, I remember one spectator in front of me, her name was Marcy. She looks back at me and said, do you think if I went up and asked for his autograph, it would be okay? But Ellen Kreitzberg says the general's own performance was far more understated than the spectacle surrounding his arrival. He's obviously a well-known witness and one who was considered to be an important witness. And part of it was his reputation and even his nickname, Mad Dog Mattis. And then when he walks in, his demeanor, his presence, and even his tone of voice really contradicted that image. He really was more avuncular, more like the grandfather who is testifying. Sitting on the stand, General Mattis, in a quiet but steady voice, proceeded to tell the court about his initial encounter with Elizabeth. It was really the first time we've heard him or any board member discuss the topic publicly at such length. 
General Mattis told the court he met Elizabeth in 2011 or 2012 at an event in San Francisco where he was giving a speech. He testified that after the event, Elizabeth pricked his finger to give him an idea of what the machine blood draw was. He said that's when he saw Theranos' mini lab, what he described as a box-like device sitting on a bench right there. He believed the whole thing happened backstage, but said he couldn't recall for sure. Mattis said his interest was immediately piqued. He told the court he was very impressed with the technology as Elizabeth described it, thinking it could have game-changing benefits on the battlefield. I was taken with the idea that with one drop of blood and with remote capability, he testified, you could basically test for a broad array of problems And in triage, where you have casualties going on, this could be very, very helpful for medical personnel if it could do what she said it could do. General Mattis told the court he could instantly see the military applications. Plus, he explained, he was impressed by Elizabeth, describing her as sharp, articulate, committed. General Mattis even shared an email he sent Elizabeth in August 2011, in which he wrote, Young folks like you remind me why we need to keep hold of the freedoms we enjoy. He was very thoughtful and considerate in his references to Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, There was nothing either in his demeanor, his tone, his language, or even in his answers that indicated he was angry, annoyed, upset with her individually based on what had happened with Theranos. Do you think that type of disposition is going to help his testimony in the eyes of the jury? I think it absolutely will, because as he sat there, he did not appear to be someone who was trying to get retaliation or get back at someone because of the position this left him in. Throughout General Mattis's testimony, Elizabeth watched, as she has now each day of the trial, sitting up pin straight in her chair, eyes focused forward. General Mattis explained to the court he based all his judgments about Theranos on what Elizabeth told him. I had no other source of information on it, as he put it. Mattis said in 2013, military casualties had not relented, and I was interested in anything that would improve the care of casualties. I was a strong believer to get this in theater, for it to stand and deliver. He said he was thinking about real lives on the battlefield, and he believed Elizabeth when she said her machine could help people and be deployed quickly. Ellen Kreitzberg says this part of Mattis's testimony in particular should have resonated with the jury. The continual reference to the theater, the combat zone, our troops, people who are sick or dying or need diagnosis, put a human side to the testimony and allowed the jury to at least think about what could this have possibly done if it had actually been accurate and understand why General Mattis would want to get involved in it. It also implicitly, without bringing out that testimony, demonstrates how dangerous this device could have been. Uh, The impact it would have had on individual soldiers, I think won't sit well with the jurors. General Mattis joined the Theranos board in 2013 after retiring from the U.S. Marine Corps, and right around the time Theranos' big deal with Walgreens was coming together. 
As Elizabeth told the SEC in a 2017 deposition, she saw Mattis as a powerful addition. Did you have a relationship with Jim Mattis prior to his addition to the board? Yes. Uh, what was that relationship? I knew him initially at CENTCOM and then um, a little bit at Hoover at Stanford when he left the military. But why did you add him to the board? He's one of the most brilliant strategists I've, I've ever met. Much like the other former high-ranking government officials on Theranos' board, including Secretaries of State George Shultz and Henry Kissinger, General Mattis brought with him a lot of gravitas at cachet, but no background in science. General Mattis told prosecutors he even asked Elizabeth why she wanted him on her board, considering I was not a medical person. According to Mattis, Elizabeth said she thought he could help her build a corporate culture, build elite teams, and get commitment out of people. In an extremely human exchange, Mattis told the court when he became a Theranos board member, he went to the bookstore and bought books to learn about how to be a board member. I studied them, he said, and highlighted every book. Prosecutors asked General Mattis about his first board meeting in October 2013 and how much Elizabeth took the reins. Ms. Holmes was in charge probably 100% that time, Mattis testified. It was in that meeting Elizabeth also allegedly made some pretty bold claims. The government showed the jury slides from her presentation, one incorrectly asserting Theranos had been comprehensively validated by 10 of the 15 largest pharmaceutical companies and that it had been endorsed by the FDA, the World Health Organization, and researchers at Johns Hopkins University, which it hadn't. This supposed third-party validation impressed the general because it wasn't just Elizabeth talking about it, he said. Mattis said he was also presented with information that Theranos tests were better, faster, and cheaper than competitors. Had he known otherwise, it would have tempered my enthusiasm significantly, he testified. But General Mattis also testified he wanted to at least see how Theranos devices performed alongside pre-existing systems to validate the claims. No such test would ever end up materializing. It also appears Mattis took on a bit of a protective role in Elizabeth's life. As Elizabeth's celebrity grew, Mattis said former Secretary of State George Shultz called him and expressed concern that Elizabeth's high profile was going to create danger for her. So Mattis connected her with his former chief bodyguard at U.S. Central Command to give her personal security. By this point, Elizabeth was appearing before giant audiences all over the country. We see a world in which every person has access to actionable health information at the time it matters. A world in which no one ever has to say goodbye too soon. But according to Mattis, he wasn't just providing Elizabeth with counsel or even security. As one of her most high-profile board members, Elizabeth also engaged General Mattis to do interviews on behalf of the company. General Mattis said Elizabeth controlled what he could and couldn't tell the media. And since he believed what she was telling him, he didn't find this to be an issue at first. For example, 
Recall that star-making fortune cover story by Roger Parloff from June 2014. It played a big role in legitimizing Elizabeth. But when the SEC depositioned her in 2017, it became clear the article was filled with untruths. Is the statement uh, that Theranos currently offers more than 200 and is ramping up to offer more than 1,000 of the most commonly ordered blood diagnostic tests, all without the need for a syringe? Was that statement correct? Reading it now, I don't think it is. The profile also said Theranos, quote, does not buy any analyzers from third parties, something the general also believed to be true at this point. But here's what Sonny and Elizabeth had to say about it in separate SEC depositions. Was that a true statement in June of 2014? No, it was not. Did you tell Mr. Parloff that most of Theranos' tests were run on commercially available analyzers? I, I don't think so. General Mattis was also quoted in the article, giving added backing and weight to Elizabeth's story. She really does want to make a dent in the universe, one that is positive, Mattis told Parloff. It happened again when Canaletta was profiling Elizabeth for The New Yorker. General Mattis testified he was given talking points from Elizabeth. One instructed him not to discuss that there was a single device that does all tests. Mattis testified that at the time, in September of 2014, he thought such an omission was rather strange because I thought we had been kind of out front that there's a single device. We've created an integrated, decentralizable platform we call the Minilab. And why would we want to hide that? Here's what Ken Aletta told us when we interviewed him. Mattis, he said to me when I interviewed him that ideally this would be wonderful if we could have these machines in ambulances and war zones and be able to test injured soldiers right there on the way to the hospital. If there were any weaknesses to General Mattis's testimony, law professor Ellen Kreitzberg believes they showed up during the defense's cross-examination. General Mattis told the court he invested $85,000 in Theranos when he joined the board. Was that a significant investment for you at the time? The prosecution asked. For someone who had been in government service for 40 years, yes, Mattis replied. General Mattis was also paid $150,000 annually for sitting on the board. But that's not exactly how he remembered it at first in the cross-examination. So the cross-examination certainly did score certain points. The lawyer was very respectful to General Mattis, but they elicited the fact that as a member of the board, he was also paid a salary. And when asked what it was, He couldn't actually remember, but he said he thought it was about $50,000. And they brought out a document to bring out the fact that, in fact, it was $150,000. And I suspect they're going to try and make a lot of that to show perhaps he doesn't remember things accurately. Still, Professor Kreitzberg believes Mattis mostly bolstered the government's case with his testimony. The problem the defense is going to have is... At the end of the day, many of the statements that he made about what happened are not really disputed. The representations made by Elizabeth Holmes to General Mattis are not factually in dispute. And so undercutting his credibility in one sense doesn't really help the representations he made as to other facts. Especially the claims Elizabeth famously made 
that Theranos devices were used in the battlefield, something Elizabeth testified to in that SEC deposition. Was a Theranos manufacturer device ever deployed uh, in the battlefield? No. Was it ever deployed in a medevac helicopter? No. General Mattis told the court, there just became a point that I didn't know what to believe about Theranos anymore. He said, looking back, he's disappointed in the lack of transparency. I couldn't see why we had been surprised on such fundamental issues, he said. As he explained to jurors, I took his good faith that what we were being told was accurate, and I assumed that when we received Theranos results, that was from the Theranos machines. The general left Theranos in 2016 when he joined the Trump administration. Ladies and gentlemen, the 26th Secretary of Defense, the Honorable Jim Mattis. He says now that he has a more complete picture of what was going on at Theranos, he has major regrets. Here he is being interviewed in 2019 on PBS by Judy Woodruff. Your association with the company Theranos, uh, it turned out to be a multi-billion dollar scam. Uh, You promoted the company's blood testing techniques when you were in uniform, you served on its board in retirement. How do you explain what happened there? You know, Judy, once in a while, uh, we can all be fooled by something. Uh, I think that the technology, at least according to the medical people, experts on the board, uh, thought it had great potential. As far as promoting it, I wanted to put it alongside what we were already doing and see if it could develop much faster and in remote locations, the same outcome. We never got it there. It had to do with FDA regulations, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, But uh, the bottom line is uh, we all make mistakes at times. And it it was obviously uh, a mistake on my part to be part of it. But uh, I I would rather trust a little too much at times because most people will not uh, betray the trust. This is Brad Milkey, host of ABC's daily news podcast, Start Here. More dropout in a minute, but first. Springtime is all about fresh air, fresh starts, and freshly cleaned homes. It's the perfect time to give a fresh look at Simply Safe Home Security. Trusted by experts, Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System for 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. Newsweek awarded it Best Customer Service in Home Security. The system blankets your whole home in protection. It's got sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more, plus a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch over your property day and night. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a buck a day, so you get fast emergency response and dispatch when you need it most. Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera, warning them that they're being recorded and police are on their way. With no contract and a 60-day money-back guarantee, you can try Simply Safe risk-free. If you don't absolutely love it, just send the system back for a full refund. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast product monitoring, just visit simplysafe.com slash dropout. That's simply, S-I-M-P-L-I, simplysafe.com slash dropout. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. 
Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. A quick reminder, if you're looking for a daily recap of the day's news, including updates on the Elizabeth Holmes trial, join me over on Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Again, that's Start Here, available wherever you listen. Recall the whole disruption at the top of this episode, just before General Mattis started his testimony. There was no arm wrestling match, as Judge Davila joked, but there was a guy whose testimony was interrupted prematurely. That guy was PricewaterhouseCoopers, or PwC employee, Justin Offen. Justin works on a team called Investigations and Forensics at PwC, and they were hired by Theranos' former law firm to collect and provide data to the SEC and the DOJ. The data included emails, text messages, Skype conversations, basically anything saved on Elizabeth's laptops, desktops, and cell phone. Justin and his team spent over 10,000 hours working on this project, racking up more than $5 million in fees. They created a 589-page spreadsheet that included 12,132 communications between Elizabeth and her former boyfriend and Theranos COO, Sonny Balwani. Remember, before the trial, the government wanted to introduce these messages into evidence, but Elizabeth's team blocked them. Judge Davila ruled the government needed to prove authenticity, so they called in Justin. Many of the messages were entered into evidence, but the actual list of all the communications is much longer. And we've obtained a copy of the entire document, providing unique insight into Elizabeth's thinking, how much she knew over the years about what was really happening inside of Theranos, and of course, her relationship with Sonny. For example, Elizabeth and Sonny were aware some patients were having really bad experiences with Theranos. In November 2014, Sonny writes to Elizabeth, customer service seems to be terrible, everyone complaining. Her response, yes. Later the same morning, Sonny texts Elizabeth, fundamentally, we need to stop fighting fires by not creating them. Again, Elizabeth replies, yes. In April 2015, at the height of Elizabeth's media blitz, Sonny texts her about a breakfast meeting with famous Silicon Valley angel investor Ron Conway, who incidentally never invested in Theranos. Sonny writes, Ron commented that there's too much hype around Theranos and you. FYI, I am worried about overexposure without solid substance, which is lacking right now. We can talk tomorrow about overexposure. Elizabeth responds, We can talk. They are just jealous. Finally, there are the many messages that shed some light on Elizabeth and Sonny's romantic relationship. On July 15, 2015, for example, Sonny writes Elizabeth, I worked for six years day and night to help you. I am sad where you and I are. I thought it would be better. I know you're angry in your way and upset with me for not doing everything you wanted me to do. Elizabeth initially replies with three question marks. But then she responds, it's just hard to transition. A few messages later, Sonny says, 
I am not leaving until we break even. We will do this together and I will be by your side until then. Can't leave like this. Sonny goes on to say, I am responsible for everything at Theranos. All have been my decisions too. And I won't transition until you're in a perfect place. You know that. You're underestimating the challenges and being childish. I have been telling you for months. Elizabeth replies, It's okay. Just was emotional, but I'm ready. And I completely get it. On the challenges. Sunny then replies, Unfortunately, you don't. And breaks my heart to see you like this. Almost two weeks later, Sunny messages Elizabeth, We need to commit to each other and get out of this hell so we can live in paradise. Elizabeth responds, I have literally been meditating on exact same. Whole time I was running, I was thinking that. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Of all the things the government accomplished this week, perhaps the most important was reminding jurors about the human impact of this story. Elizabeth Holmes and her company Theranos didn't just cost wealthy investors their money. As General Mattis testified, there were expectations Theranos could help save soldiers in the battlefield. And as we're about to hear from a doctor and a patient, there were lives impacted here at home too. Remember, Theranos had big aspirations to build wellness centers and Walgreens stores nationwide. As Elizabeth told a Fortune conference during an interview in 2014. Are you able to say like in five years how many Walgreens you might be in? Sure. So there's there's 8,200 Walgreens nationally. Mm-hmm. That would put us within five miles of every American's home. Uh-huh. And that's what we're working to do. But the only states Theranos ultimately made it into were Arizona and California. Audra Zachman is a nurse practitioner who works at an OBGYN in Phoenix, Arizona. She has a DNP, or Doctor of Nursing Practice, degree. And throughout her testimony, the court referred to her as Dr. Zachman, which is what we'll be calling her throughout this episode. Dr. Zachman testified she first heard about Theranos in the summer of 2014 when a company rep visited her office. Part of Dr. Zachman's job at the time was evaluating new products, and Theranos sounded to her like a great option. Prosecutor John Bostick asked what factors went into evaluating whether or not to use Theranos. And Dr. Zachman said the most important things were it was reliable, cost-effective, and had good turnaround time for the results. She was also enticed by the less invasive nature of a finger prick, especially for patients who needed frequent blood draws. 
Theranos seemed to check all the boxes. So Dr. Zachman and her colleagues began recommending it to their patients, including a woman named Brittany Gould, who was called as the prosecution's next witness. Brittany had suffered three miscarriages by the summer of 2014, and Bostic asked her if she felt comfortable telling the court about her struggles with fertility. Brittany told the court she had a hard time carrying pregnancies past the first trimester. Usually, right around that 12-week mark, I would lose my pregnancies and suffer a miscarriage. But after so much loss in September of 2014, Brittany received good news. She was pregnant again. She visited Dr. Zachman shortly after taking her at-home pregnancy test. Because of Brittany's history of miscarriages, her pregnancy was deemed higher risk and required closer monitoring. Blood tests every few days. If you've been through a pregnancy or dealt with infertility, you know the importance of these tests tracking HCG. It's a hormone produced during pregnancy. HCG is supposed to double every 48 to 72 hours in the early stages of a healthy pregnancy. After Brittany's first HCG blood test through a lab called SonoraQuest, Dr. Zachman recommended Theranos testing, a less invasive method, which she could do through just a finger prick. As it turned out, Brittany, who's also a medical assistant, had already heard about Theranos. They were recommending it to patients at her own practice. So when Dr. Zachman recommended Theranos tests to track Brittany's HCG levels, she thought it sounded like a good idea. It would even save her some money. As she told the court, my plan was a high deductible and it was more cost-effective for me. Two days after Brittany's first HCG read of 1005 on a non-Theranos test, Brittany received her first Theranos HCG test results, 12,558. It was an abnormally high value, but not indicative of a miscarriage. 48 hours after that, she got her next Theranos HCG test. This time, her level had dropped to 125, a very troubling indication. Dr. Zachman told the court, I remember communicating to Brittany that it was looking as though this was a non-viable pregnancy, which would make it her fourth loss. When the prosecution asked Brittany about this part, she looked like she was fighting back tears. Her voice quivered. She'd received a goodie bag for new moms when she arrived at Dr. Zachman's office. And by the end of her appointment, she was discussing treatment options for the possible miscarriage. Despite the anticipated loss, Dr. Zachman wanted Brittany to continue taking HCG tests to ensure there wasn't pregnancy tissue still present in her body. So two days later, Brittany had her blood drawn again, but this time it was by SonoraQuest. Her level, 9,559. 48 hours later, she took another SonoraQuest test. Her level had nearly doubled again. As it turned out, Brittany was still pregnant. The Theranos tests were wrong. Brittany would go on to have a healthy baby girl. Law professor Ellen Kreitzberg says the emotional toll of Brittany's story was impossible to ignore, even though jurors have been instructed to look at only the facts. 
You could see it in her demeanor on the stand. You could hear it in the upset in her voice even years later. Most women certainly would appreciate how traumatizing that could be. It doesn't have to be put up on a screen or testified to directly. And so that emotional component was coming through loud and clear through those witnesses. They didn't have to actually verbalize it in their testimony. Do you think the emotional impact of her testimony will impact the jury, even though it's not supposed to? Jurors, I think, take the instructions very seriously when the court tells them that they're not to consider the impact or the emotion. Uh, It means it won't be part of the discussion. It won't be part of their conversation in the jury room, because when it comes up, usually there's at least one juror who will say, judge told us not to talk about that. But it may affect the lens at which they look at the information that they're getting. Following Brittany's experience, Dr. Zachman testified she felt uncomfortable as a provider continuing to have her patients receive Theranos tests. She said in the course of her career, reviewing thousands of HCG results, she's never had a test accuracy issue like she experienced with Brittany. She described the circumstances as very impactful to her and that it always stuck out. She filed a complaint with Theranos and said the company was receptive, but didn't provide her with anything that would restore her faith in the company. The defense did a short cross-examination of Dr. Zachman, essentially attempting to show Brittany's experience was anecdotal, not statistically significant. Remember, it's a point the defense also emphasized in opening arguments when Lance Wade told the jury to keep in mind that Theranos generated 8 million test results and misdiagnosed patients were just a fraction of the outcomes. Of course, what he didn't say was Theranos was forced to void two years of its test results. When it came time for Brittany's cross-examination, the defense didn't have any questions. There was nothing to challenge her on. Her testimony was very factual. Uh, I took this blood test, somewhere from Theranos, here were the results. The numbers indicated to me uh, that I may have been miscarrying. Any cross-examination could elicit more emotional response, even though she was clearly trying to be very calm uh, on the witness stand. And so sometimes lawyers need to know when not to stand up um, and when not to ask questions. The general and the patient, two vastly different experiences with Theranos that both reflect the deeply human toll this story sometimes has. A four-star luminary hoping to improve soldiers' lives on the battlefield and a mother looking to confirm her pregnancy. Yes, it's technology we're talking about here. Facts, figures, devices. But the human factor can sometimes get lost in the weeds. Two witnesses this week reminded us there were actual people, real lives in question here. Something the government will no doubt hope to remind this jury throughout the course of the trial. Next week, we'll take you inside the testimony of one-time Theranos lab director, Adam Rosendorf, who tells the court he came to believe the company cared more about PR and fundraising than patient care. When you say the mini lab was not working, what do you mean? It wasn't giving accurate results. 
He testifies to what he says were serious problems with the Theranos technology and paints a picture of Elizabeth trembling and clearly upset before the Walgreens launch. Tune in next Tuesday for more. Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Belwani did not respond to requests for interviews for this podcast. General Mattis, through a representative, told us he is choosing to let his testimony stand on its own and won't be making additional statements or doing interviews. The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial, is written and reported by Victoria Thompson, Taylor Dunn, and me. Victoria is the executive producer. Taylor and I are the producers. For ABC Audio, Susie Lewis, producer, and Madeline Wood and Marwa Mowaki are associate producers. Our field producer is Dia Athen. For ABC's business unit, our associate producer is Victor Ardonez, and our production assistant is Lane Wynn. Mixing and scoring is by Susie Liu and Evan Viola. Evan also composed the music for The Dropout. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and Cedric Honstadt. For ABC Audio, Liz Alessi is executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ian Rosenberg, Eric Avram, and Stacia Deshishku. Be sure to subscribe to The Dropout Podcast. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review.